You know, Will is not wrong. I had my Tums before this service, so should have very minimal indigestion. Some of you are confused as to why you're seeing me. You thought I left two weeks ago. Sorry to disappoint you, but I am still here. Uh, but I will leave today on sabbatical. So very excited for that. We're going to go away for eight weeks and uh, excited to get some time just to be with the fam. And uh, we're going to be moving as well to Folsom. So don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We are really, really excited uh, for the season that's coming up. But I don't know about you, but I have made some terrible decisions in my life. Anyone else? You ever made, you ever made a bad decision? Maybe you touched some aluminum siding that was in the sun on a hot July day in El Dorado Hills. Or maybe uh, you're like me and you don't really think things through all that much. And uh, I was in college and some of the boys were like, dude, you want to go on this backpacking trip? And without very little to no preparation, I went on the trip and lost a sleeping bag along the way. And we found ourselves on top of a mountain in the middle of March, which is a cold time to backpack and we had to share sleeping bags. That is not a very fun thing. I've made some really dumb decisions in my life. Anybody, can you resonate with that? You may, okay, so there's some dumb decisions that I've made in my life, but there's also some that I would say were not the dumbest decision I've ever made. So I'm sitting there in my college dorm room, it's a Friday, and I see my phone ring, look down, and I was confused. I was perplexed because the normal robo calls that I get are from my home area code, a 707, and this was 714. So I thought to myself, you know, if it's a telemarketer, I'll just go ahead and answer it. Maybe it's not, but if it is, I can mess with them because uh, that's fun to do, right? So I answer the phone. I say, hello. Hey, this is Drew. Uh, I'm going to be planting a church in Eldorado Hills. Got your name from a friend of mine uh, who knows you. Could you lead worship at our church in a couple weeks? I was like, yes, I'm in. Little to no uh, context whatsoever. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, can you get a band together too? I'm at a Christian college. Of course I can get a band together. All of my friends are musicians. Okay, great. And then uh, one, one last thing. Hey, uh, maybe, maybe uh, if you're available, but we have this thing called Set Up and Tear Down uh, on Friday night before church. Do you think you could show up for Set Up too? I'm in. All right, see you then. So I hang up the phone and December 6th of 2013 rolls around. And I come up the hill from Rockland to El Dorado Hills in my flip-flops. And it was snowing. It was snowing. You go check your farmer's almanac or whatever it is that you check. All right, you go back there. December 6, 2013, it's snowing in El Dorado Hills. And so I'm out there in my flip-flops and shorts helping get things set up. We're running around getting everything done. And these people were like, who is this guy? And so we got things set up, we rolled, and then rolled into Sunday the next day. And there's this, there's this really uh, unique talent that I have, which is when a guitar is in my hands, my IQ drops by like 50 points. <laughs> Drew didn't know that when he asked me to lead worship. He's like, ah, oh, this guy's going to be great. So I go up and, and I was like, you know how like normally people are like, oh, what's up, church? Let's worship. You know, me, I sit up there and I was like, okay, let's start and just like went after it. He's like, what have I done? And then I was supposed to uh, reference something. You know how we do these little giveaway thing, like kaleidoscopes, all that? That's not new. We've been doing it for eight years. And so that first Sunday, I was supposed to mention like these little bows on the chair, but 
my brain doesn't work with guitar in hand, okay? So I didn't mention those whatsoever. We finished out the service. It went just about okay. And, uh, and then he meets with me again uh, like a week later or so. And uh, he said, hey, so did, did you just happen to forget the bow thing or, or what happened there? And I was like, what bow thing? <laughs> I... Don't know what you're talking about. And so he's like, okay, well, we we can work with this. And so he offers me a job. Um, <laughs> because when you're a church plant, uh, you take what you can get, okay? And so he, he took a chance on me, a little 21-year-old Dace, uh, who could not speak with the guitar in my hand to be the worship leader for a season. Oh, thank Jesus, we have a much better setup now. I actually think, it, I'm probably wrong about this, but I think Jason Ashdown, our current worship pastor, was the one who canceled, or one of his friends that I'm not sure, but it's his fault I'm here, okay? And then it's now my fault he's here, all right? So... You're stuck with us for a little while. But, but that moment that I said yes in my dorm room um, was a moment that I had no idea would change the trajectory of my life. It would change so much about the way that I see what life is about. It would change the way that I look at my purpose, the way that I look at meaning. I had no idea the amount of lives that I would see transformed from the inside out over these past eight years. Like even just looking out, there's some of you who are here from the good old days. You remember the setup, tear down life. Guys, we used to roll out carpets. Some of you don't know what that means. They were not like, oh, that's a cute rug. No, they were the length of the Marina Village auditorium. And we would roll those things out and then roll them back every Sunday. And we'd pick those things up, man. They, we, went, we went hard back in the day. It was so much fun. Great memories from it. But what I loved the most was seeing people's lives be transformed by the grace of God, being transformed by these things at our church that, that we value things that we value. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of our values. I'm going away on sabbatical, and so Drew asked me to, to preach before I ride off into the sunset. And so uh, what we're going to do today is share a little bit um, about how God has worked in my life in the last eight years. And so he asked me to talk on that. And as I was reflecting, I realized that much of what's changed is what I value is what I find important. And as I was reflecting on that, I realized, oh, wow, a lot of the things I value are just the values of the church. Now, some of you guys didn't even know we have values. Maybe you saw it on a church website at one point, or, you know, God forbid it's obligatorily painted in a lobby at some point, or maybe you saw it on a bookmark. You're like, okay, the values exist. I've heard them in a classroom environment maybe, but, but what are they and why do they matter? You see, we make decisions based on what we value. We make decisions based on what we value. And what you value is immensely important because it influences what you decide. And that's what makes up kind of what your life comprises is these different decisions that we make day after day. There's a distinction to be made between vision and values. Okay, vision is where are we headed? Where are we going? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Values are what are we not willing to compromise to get there? What will we never break in order to get there? And, and these things have been so true of us for the last eight years as a church, and they're things that'll continue to be true for us. These values have held the rudder in the right direction as we've had to navigate so many different challenges 
over the eight years as a church. But one caveat before we continue is this. These values are not the Ten Commandments, right? The elders did not go to Tahoe and find some cave and then some angel descended and gave them these commandments. That's not where they came from. These values are simply things that we've seen in Scripture as a model for how to live this Christian life, as a model for how to do church. And so they're driven from Scripture. And Typically, on a Sunday, what we do is we'll grab a text, a paragraph of scripture, and we'll walk through it verse by verse. Today's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be all over the Bible. You uh, recovering Baptists in the room, you know we're going to be doing a sword drill today, okay? So get your Bible out. We're going to be all over, but we're going to be all over scripture, pulling these truths of God together to see where these values come from. And here's my hope for you. I know that each of you in here have values, you have things that matter to you. Maybe family is something that matters to you. Maybe faith is something that matters to you. Maybe you value achievement or success. You all have values and you make decisions based on what you value. And so my hope for you today is as we talk about these values that are found in God's word, that they might challenge you a little bit in the way that you decide and the way you live your life, that they might also encourage you in the way that you live your life to look for things that align and coincide with scripture when we go and live about our lives and seek to honor God in everything that we say and do. So the first value is this. There is more joy in Jesus than anyone or anything else this world has to offer. Amen, somebody? I see a lot of you nod, and you're like, yep, we've been here. We've been heard that. Some of you guys are new. Here's what we're going to tell you, all right? There is more joy in Jesus. We've staked the whole farm on that one, okay? This, I thought when I first got here, I thought, oh, this is just like Vintage Grace's marketing scheme, right? Like every church picks a thing, you know, Grace Church, Hope Church, faithfulness. They just take the fruits of the spirit and roll a dice and pick one, right? I don't know why they never pick patience. <laughs> Seems a little suspicious to me. I'm just saying, yeah, welcome to Patience Community Church. Like, I, I've never heard that. I'd like to hear that someday. So if you're in here and you want to start a church one day, I'm just saying, it hasn't been chosen. The website is available. Okay. <laughs> we have been about joy for since day one. I thought it was just, ah, oh, it's just like the thing that they picked and day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it's just been true time and time again that we really believe that joy, interchangeable with happiness, what really makes you happy will only ever be found in Jesus. That's the only place that's ever truly going to make you happy. You know, it's not something that we made up. It's actually all over scripture. It's in the Westminster Catechism, 1647. They said, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, to find joy in Jesus forever. In Philippians chapter four, Paul's writing to this group of believers who are like the poster children of Christianity, okay? They would have been on the billboard saying, come to our church. Like they were great Christians, well known for their love and for their faith. But even to these people who had it together, he commands them to be joyful. He commands them to be happy. Look at this in chapter four, verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That means whatever circumstance. That means whatever comes. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, he repeats himself, rejoice. This is an instruction that he gives us. It's not really optional, this idea of finding joy. And so that kind of leaves us with a problem, right? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not happy every day I wake up. 
There have been plenty of times where I've been happy in my life. In fact, psychologists, economists, philosophers, as they try to understand happiness, there's dozens of journal articles written about this. It's this thing called a theory of well-being. I've tried to pinpoint how are people happy and how do we become happier? And some of the things that they'll say are ways that we find well-being is uh, we need family and relationships. We, we need to just like really focus on our family and our relationships and we're going to be happier. Another one is meaningful work. If you can get into a flow state where you're doing the thing you're designed to do, you'll be happier. If you can just think positively that, oh, it's all going to work out, you'll be happier. These are some of the things that the culture is discovering. Oh, this seems to make people's mood improve. You know what's interesting is that all three of those things are also concepts that God's word does give us and does instruct us in. Like we're given the family of God. We're given meaningful relationships even beyond our initial sphere of family that we can grow and learn and love in. We're given the family of God. We're given flow. God has given you a unique gift to use and for kingdom movement. Like you have meaningful work to do. Positive thinking, we call it a final score mindset. We know at the end of the day, God wins. Right? It's not just a God's got it Christian platitude. Like, you know, God wins at the end of the day so we can weather any storm because we know the final score. But even those three things, they fall short of what we're saying. What we're saying is that true happiness, true well-being is found in Jesus himself, the person of Jesus. You know, it's only gonna be found in him. And it's because we have an insatiable need to be happy. Um, Some of the happiest times of my life. The first one uh, I can think of is when I got married. Okay, so it's it's my wedding day and it was kind of cloudy like today. And Lexi comes walking out of the barn. Okay, millennials getting married. You know what I'm saying? All right, so she comes walking out of the barn and it's kind of cloudy. And I kid you not, there is photographic evidence of this occurrence. All right, the clouds just parted. And a beam of light was like, like came down and she lit up and my face was like, oh, I thought it was going to fold over backwards. There's a picture of that as well uh, from that day of just the biggest smile. I remember being so happy in that moment. Another moment was when our baby was born and she's sitting in the bassinet at Kaiser and I'm leaning over the bassinet and I don't know where this came from. Okay, there's three words not in my vocabulary prior to this moment. I said, hi, sweet pea. I'm still not sure what a sweet pea is. I, if you had me, if I need to identify it at Home Depot, to, I wouldn't know what they are, okay? But it just came out of me. Like there's this happiness that welled out that I couldn't even contain that came out in looking at our new daughter. My brother's somebody who I've been super happy around because he has the uncanny ability to make me laugh until I cry. Do you have people like that in your life? You know, we can be happy in all those instances, right? But there's something called hedonic adaptation which means that as life goes on, we kind of adjust to the happiness that we feel, and then we need to get happy again. The only thing that will ever continually fill that cup forever, for eternity, will be Jesus. He designed us that way with that insatiable need in our heart. You know, we're driven by what we want. We're driven by our desires. I used to think that that wasn't true. Um, I was sitting in a desiring God group with Drew and Drew said, I never do anything I don't want to do. And I was like, cap, which is uh, youth speak for that's not true. And so he said, I never do anything that I don't want to do. And then he looked at me and he said, and neither do you. Oh yeah, well, I take out the trash when I don't want to. 
It's like, no, but you want to. Like, like think about it. You, you would prefer to take out the trash because you don't want the consequence of not taking out the trash. So really, you actually want to take out the trash. Well, um, I, I just try to keep thinking of other things. And he's like, no, literally everything that you do is driven by your desires and your wants. We don't do things we don't want to do. The reason why we don't just go off the rails is because we have some sort of social pressure not to sometimes. We're like, okay, well, I, I can't do that because, no, it's because you don't want to. You don't want the cost of not doing the thing. We're driven by our desires. But part of the problem with that is sometimes when it comes to our Christian faith, we can think, oh, okay, I have to be happy. I have to be joyful. That's called duty and obligation. That, that's a pressure that Jesus didn't give you. What he did is he actually called you to, to start by just loving and beholding him. And maybe it doesn't start with you being happy. But the most important thing that we can do is leave duty and obligation out of our spiritual formation. Here's why. When, when, uh, when we realize that maybe we're not being happy or being made joyful in Jesus, it's one of the best places to start because um, in Desiring God, it's a book by John Piper, goes through these ideas of joy in Jesus and kind of synthesizes them in an approach of how to live life this way. He has the appendix. Anybody uh, appendix reader? You're, you're one of those. I read the epilogue. Okay, you're like, I'm, I'm a footnote guy, all right? I'm a footnote guy. And so I, I read the appendix. And reason number four is the best part of the whole book for me. And here's why. He says, look, every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before sometimes. We know that to be true. We know that there are hard days that we experience. Joy in Jesus is not ignorant of that fact. But here's what he says to do. He says, the first step is this. You're gonna confess your lack of joy. You start with saying, God, I know that joy is found in you. I know that you're where I'm to be made most happy. I know you're where my satisfaction is, but I don't have it. And we confess that we don't have it. And then, ask for it. He says to ask for it. He says, just ask for the joy of obedience or ask for the joy of whatever God's calling you to do in that moment. And then my favorite part as a good legalistic, former legalistic Christian is do it anyway. But here's the problem. If we just picked it up and said, all right, I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm just going to do what God wants anyway. We're missing out on what Christianity is really about. He doesn't want our performance. He doesn't want us to just act like we have it together. He wants us to genuinely desire him above all things. And so if we don't go through this process of confessing our lack of joy and asking for joy, we're gonna miss out on the true joy that he wants us to have in him. Listen, when you can reclaim that level of agency in your life, when you recognize that you don't do anything you don't wanna do, it's kind of scary at first, but then what it does is it reveals what your heart really cares about. And then you can actually grow in your faith. If we just keep living out of duty and obligation, we're not dealing with the core issue. We're not dealing with the core desire. That's why we have to start and say, okay, I don't have it, but I want it. God, would you help me to do it? It lays bare the intentions of our heart. And so the way that we discover that joy in Jesus, the way that we discover that that's truly what he's called us to is by being biblically saturated, okay? That's our second value. We wanna be biblically saturated. That means that we know God's word so well that when the pressure hits, God's word comes out. That when we start feeling the squeeze from life, it's his words that start flowing from us. That's what it means to be biblically saturated. I love in uh, the biggest chapter of the biggest book of the Bible, there's a Psalm 119. 
And Psalm 119 is like a love letter to God, thanking him for the gift of his word. If you just read that, it's an incredible, inspiring psalm. I just grabbed a handful of verses just to share with you today. But here's some of the things that the psalmist writes about the word of God. He says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. I will walk about in freedom for I've sought your precepts. I've sought your word. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise, your word preserves my life. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end, on keeping your word to the very end. Psalm 119.97 says, oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your word. I meditate it all day. I meditate on it all day. The psalmist knew where happiness was found. The psalmist knew that happiness would only be found in the words of God, which points us to life. And so as he's writing this psalm, the psalms were intended to shape the prayer and the worship of the people of God. So they were used for worship. They were used to shape the way that they prayed, the way that they thought. They're meant and intended to shape the worship of the people of God for all time. They point to the need for our Savior and point to the reality of who God is and what he's designed us to be. So what does it take to be so saturated in scripture like this picture from Psalm 119? It takes becoming a self-feeder means you have to learn how to read the Bible for yourself. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, uh, trying to encourage this young leader. Paul's at the end of his life. He's trying to encourage him to stay true to the truth, to hang on tight to what's real while he is about to, to end um, his journey here on this earth. Here's what he says to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. He's saying, God, Paul knows the importance of internalizing the word of God. He knows the importance of knowing the word of God so well that it does come out when the pressure hits. But Timothy wouldn't get it unless he went and read it. Like Timothy would have to read the word of God and know the word of God. Is anybody in here a, a, a clinical overthinker? You, know, you overthink things. You're afraid to raise your hand. That's okay. I am a clinical overthinker, okay? And then I went to Bible school and it made me even more of an overthinker, all right? Because then you learn all these little study methods and you get in there with the text. And you're like, yeah, well, what is the historical grammatical context of this word and this phrase? And is it in the imperative aorist tense or not? Like you start making things up. You don't even know if what I said was real. I'm a clinical overthinker, okay? And when it, when it came to studying God's word, I just got worse. And then I came here and we study God's word all the time. And so we're sitting there and uh, we were about to do this series on the Old Testament. It was one of our first series we did. We're gonna go through looking at some of the different promises that God had made that pointed to the Messiah that was to come. And I was like, wait, so how are we gonna navigate all the intricacies of blah, blah, blah? And it just kept going, going, going. And Drew just like, was like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, we're gonna use the same thing we always use. I was like, what's that? Author's intent, logic and flow, big idea. He, those three things have been hammered into my head for eight years and it has helped me so much because when it comes to reading God's word, I don't have to be afraid of any text. I can go read Leviticus and I can go read Revelation. I can read Lamentations because every text, we use the same three interpretive principles. What did the author mean when they wrote it? What's the logic and flow of how the argument's going? What's the big idea? Because spoiler alert, big ideas are more important than little ideas. That's why we stay big idea focused when we walk through the text. 
because it's where we find the operating point of control when it comes to interpreting the text. These ideas were so kind of new to me, even after taking my hermeneutics classes and biblical interp, like getting into an environment where we just practice this simple mode of interpretation helps the word of God come alive in my life. I hope it's come alive in your life too. I hope as a result of being here that you guys continue to see the word of God come to life with just some of these basic principles of what did he say? What did he mean? How does it apply? You know, when we're reading God's word, we're literally writing neural pathways in our brains. Like what we know about the way that our brains work is when we read, it creates these white cells. And these white cells have like these myelin sheaths that create faster connections in your brain. So the more that you read about God's word, the more your brain starts to make connections in your life with God's word. You literally will recall it faster on a physiological level. How incredible is that? God wired us for this, to know God's word. It's invaluable. My encouragement to you is to get a hold of God's word so that God can get a hold of you. That's how he does it. He starts writing his truth in our lives. So getting into God's word, getting a grasp on it, living in it, it can't be done alone. Sure, you could go off in some some mountain retreat and read God's word, but you really can't do much with it until you live it out in community. It actually has to be expressed with other people and to be sharpened by other people. That's why our next value is communitas. So if community is a common unity, communitas is a common mission. We did not make up this word. It is a, it's a word that someone else has used too. So we created a common mission that we're formed around, right? Jesus has given us this job to do. We're called to make disciples who make disciples. We have a common mission and we do that together. You see in Acts 2, Luke is writing to not prescriptively tell us how to church, but he writes to show us what the early church was about what the early church valued, what they gathered, how they talked to each other, how they treated one another. And he, and he tells us what that early church did. In 2.42, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the big idea in Acts is that the Holy Spirit creates this communitas for kingdom movement. This is a picture of that communitas. This is a picture of what it looked like from those early church believers. And something that I've had the joy of experiencing here is people living on mission together, actually trying to live this way and trying to be a real community. You know, Lexi and I have sat in so many different life groups over the years. We've led different life groups over the years. And there are some things that you can only learn in community. I wouldn't know that I have a tendency to be passive aggressive unless somebody tells me that. Unless somebody sits across me and says, hey man, that kind of came across wrong. I'm not gonna just know that myself. I'm not gonna be able to check myself. You need other people to hold up the mirror. We need community to grow. We need community to live out the truth of the gospel. 
I love how when you're living in this communitas, you get this feeling of being in the trenches together. When we first moved into this facility, okay, we used to meet in the middle school. We moved here to, to the, um, the church that was here. We had joined forces with a church called Cornerstone and we remodeled like the whole other side of this campus. And it was all hands on deck, okay? Twas the week before Christmas and all through the church, every creature was stirring and my toe got hurt. We were moving things in and I literally like hit my toenail on this cabinet and it was the most painful thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm not going to show you a picture of it. I know better, but it hurt, man. But we just kept going. It was like, no, we have a mission. Okay. It doesn't matter. We sprung a leak over there. I didn't even know there was water over there. This leak starts springing from the floor and people start showing up in the middle of the night to help fix it and to relay different vinyl planks and stuff and just getting things dialed in. Like so many people just put it all on the line to make this thing happen because we knew that this was going to be a place that people were going to encounter joy in Jesus. We knew that this would be a place where people would start to have their lives transformed. It, it's going to start maybe in your living room. It's going to start maybe in a conversation, in a coffee shop. But we know that hearing the word preached and lived out in people's lives is transformative. And so that propelled us. That propelled us through to just keep working and making it happen to get in here. And it was such a fun time moving in, like right before Christmas, which we said we'd never do again. And then we may have done it once again. Anyway, it's been, it's been so much fun to be on the battleship together, though, and to chase after that, to watch the church really do that, and to also watch the church care for each other. There's a unique thing that happens in, in the people of God in this communitas where because we have a common mission, people from all different walks of life, from different socioeconomic statuses, from different, different growing up background, all of that, we all come together and we have the same mission, which means that we are on the same team, which means that we're one family and we have each other's backs. And when we're going through stuff, we're there for each other. It's fun to look out even right now at people who've been around here for almost eight years and those of you who've joined us along the way and to think of all the different ways that people have just loved each other the way that Christ has called us to love one another. You guys, we weren't meant to do this thing alone. That's why we have a communitas. That's why we do this thing together. And so when we come together as a community, we come together for a purpose, right? Our purpose is this, is to be the living proof of our loving God. Does that intimidate anybody? You guys are less honest than first service today. Okay, it's intimidating to me, and here's why. If we really understand what that's saying, like, oh, I'm gonna be living proof for loving God, and we recognize the depth of our sin, it's like, how's that gonna work? Because I don't know about you, but I mess up all the time. I don't know about you, but I'm not the best picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. We need constantly Jesus to fill in the gap for us in this arena, but we know that we're called to be the living proof of our loving God. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, okay? Paul's in prison, he's in prison and he's writing to this church that was living out the truth of the gospel, but he's urging them, he's begging them to be unified around the truth of the gospel. That's the first three chapters. The last three chapters, he shows them how to do it. This is where that pivot point happens. The first verse of chapter four, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, I beg you, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word there for worthy is axios. It means to weigh something, right? You know, the calling that Jesus has given us is so heavy, I don't know if any of us could tip the scale. That's why we need Jesus in our place to do that. Jesus is who 
makes us worthy to follow him. It's not because of us. It's not because of what we've done or what we've earned. That's abundantly clear in the first three chapters, like where that source of life comes from. And here he says, walk in a manner worthy of what God has done for you. He says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, it's kind of funny how sometimes um, Christians, the longer they've been Christian, the grumpier they get. Anybody notice that? It's kind of a weird idea, right? Like, I don't know about you, but Jesus is like pretty compassionate. And if we're becoming more like him, maybe we would be more compassionate. It's a good question. But, but maybe it's because we've thought that we were walking worthy. Oh yeah, I am living proof of loving God. You're not, and neither am I. It's aspirational for a reason, right? Like we're called to say, you know, I don't measure up. And that looks like humility and gentleness and patience. It's recognizing that we don't have it all together. And I think that's what the world needs to hear is that Christians don't think we have it all together. We don't think we have this thing dialed. But this call to live on mission is a call for all. We're all called to do it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said one time that every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. That may be a little strong. I would never say that to you. But we're all called to live on mission, to see our lives as a mission field, that wherever we go, we're called to exemplify who Christ is. You know, uh, one of my favorite things that I've got to see over the last eight years is something we call pray, watch, overlap, okay? Pray, watch is simple. It means that we pray for the people who are in our lives and we watch for opportunities to step. We watch for opportunities for God to move. So we just keep praying. And some of us, you're, you're gonna have a fat list because you know a lot of people. Some of us, you know five people. Keep praying for those five people and go meet some more people. Like we are called to be in this world, to be salt and light and to keep praying and watching. And what I love has happened is sometimes there will be someone, they'll come to church and I'll be like, oh, sweet, what's up? And they're like, oh, my friend invited me. And I'm like, but you were on my pray watch list. And then, I, and then I realized, wait a minute, that means that someone else is praying and watching. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm this person too. And then before you know it, people are like, oh yeah, I've been praying for them. Oh yeah, I've been praying for them. And then there's this amazing overlap that happens where there's all these people who see their job as being a missionary. And then as people start to engage with who Jesus is and get into community, whether it's in a home or in a group or at an event or at a Sunday, there's this overlap of people who are living on mission. Guys, it's so joyous to see it. Here's what, here's what Starbucks Saratoga doesn't understand. They keep hiring our missionaries, okay? They're, they're over here, they're like, oh man, these college kids are great. They keep hiring them. No, they go here, okay? They're missionaries and now they're paid by Starbucks to live on mission, okay? Like that, Starbucks Saratoga doesn't stand a chance, all right? Like God is moving, He's moving. And, and there are people who see their purpose as being the living proof of our loving God. As imperfectly as we do it, we know that that's what we're called to do. And so we point to the one who is perfect. We're called to be living proof of our loving God. However, there are times where we're going to find ourselves in a gap. We're going to find ourselves in tension because there's times in our life where it's a little bit harder to be living proof than others. There's times when it's harder to believe in God's goodness. What do we do when we reach those moments in our lives? What's the first thing that we do when we reach that? At Vintage Grace, we call this embracing inevitable tensions. We know that there's suffering. We know that there's hurt in this world. We know that there's pain, there's sickness, there's death. Those are tensions that exist 
They're a result of a fallen world. Because of the fall, because of sin that is rampant in this world, it's rampant in our lives, rampant in the culture. Because of that, sin, sickness, and death exist on this earth. And so we live in the tension between God's completed plan of redemption and what we just live in every day. And I don't know about you, but tensions are some of the most painful things in life. And tensions, what's, what breaks my heart is many times tensions are what cause people to walk away from Jesus because they come against the tension and, and they don't know how to reconcile it. They don't know how to sort through it. They don't have the communitas with them. They aren't saturated in scripture. They don't understand there's joy in Jesus. And what starts to happen is their fragile faith starts to fall apart or they get hit with something so hard they don't know how to handle it. And then they see this tension and instead of embracing the inevitable nature that tensions are and that they will always come, we're always gonna have them. You're either in a trial, you're either gonna go into a trial or you just came out of a trial. Like it's kind of just perpetual in life. There are tensions everywhere. But if we don't have a foundation of embracing that reality, it's gonna take us out. And so actually what, we're, what Jesus does or what, what we see in scripture is that these tensions are places that God meets us. God meets us in the gaps. He meets us in the pain. Here's what we know is true. God did not have to suffer. He didn't have to. God could have just stayed in heaven, done his thing, found some other way to redeem everything and not choose to suffer. And yet what God does is he incarnates himself. The person of Jesus comes and lives the perfect life and chooses a life of suffering. He chooses the cruciform life where he heads toward the cross, not away from suffering, but towards suffering to suffer in our place. Also, as we know in Hebrews, because then we would have a great high priest who has been tempted like us in every way, but yet was without sin. We know that Jesus has felt every pain, every temptation to run from God that we will ever feel in our lives. And yet he chose to stay faithful. God never had to do that, but he chose to do that. He chose to suffer alongside of us. God is so unique when it comes to the way that the different religions of the world talk about suffering or an answer for suffering. Like maybe they say, oh, you just have to transcend it. Just, just think beyond it. Or maybe just make meaning out of your suffering. Or maybe they say, oh, if you're suffering, it's because you did wrong. That's Buddhism, right? There's all different perspectives on suffering that are out there in the world. But the offer and the suggestion that the Christian faith makes about suffering is God doesn't just put up his hand and say, oh, well, sucks to be you. He says, no, I'm actually going to feel it with you. And not only am I going to feel it with you, we know that in his imminence, Jesus and God, they weep alongside of our pain. That's why we see Jesus weep at the death of Lazarus. He knows Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. And yet he weeps because he's imminent. But yet in his transcendence, he knows where it's going to end. God weeps along with us, but he doesn't just suffer with us. He has a plan to deal with it. We got to see that in Revelation 21. We see this picture of the heaven that's to come of no more pain, no more sickness, no more crying, no more tears, no more hurt. A world that is fixed, a world that is set right because of God's plan of redemption. That's the hope that we have in Jesus on the other side of our tensions. But here's part of the problem. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he recognized that there's some things in scripture that are hard to understand. There's some things in God's word that you're gonna read and you're gonna be like, what? And here's what he says in chapter three. He's writing to a group of Christians that were scattered 
They were scattered across the nations because of persecution. They were being ripped from their homes and killed in the streets because of their faith. And Peter wants them to stay firm to what's true, to stay firm to the truth. And so he's giving him instruction after instruction about how to stay true to what God's word is. And here in 2 Peter 3, he says something about what to do with some of the hard things in God's word. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks of them in these matters, he says, look, the stuff Paul's been writing, because you know, the New Testament wasn't like a thing yet, right? Okay, so the things Paul's been writing, that's really good. God's been giving him that instruction. You guys should know it. You should internalize it and you should live it. But then he says one of my favorite verses in the Bible, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen, somebody. Okay, I don't know about you, but there's something, you, you start rolling through Romans 9 through 11 and it's like, wait, hold on. What, what about a remnant and a grafting and a what? Like there's some things in scripture that are gonna be hard to understand. And here's the temptation. It's not a 2022 problem. It's a all of time problem. We're gonna want to take things in scripture and twist them to say what we want. It says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scripture. Even then, people were taking things that God said and saying, did he really say that? Did he really mean that? Is that really sin? And they wanted to twist it so that they could kind of be okay or write off their own sins. That same thing happens today. People want to look at scripture and explain away the stuff that they don't like. Peter warned us about that. He said, that's what leads to your destruction. If you take any of these tensions and you try to just do away with them, one, for example, does God choose us or do we choose God? The answer is yes, both, okay? Read scripture. I could find you 100 verses on this side, 100 verses on this side. It all seems to happen at the same time in the synergistic reality that we experience, okay? So if we resolve that and say, no, it's only God choosing us, well, we miss it. Or it's only us choosing God. Well, we also miss it. You have to hold both of those things in tension. But if we resolve those tensions, we end up leading toward destruction. We miss out on the exact truth of what God has presented to us. Now, if you could take your five pound, 10 ounce brain and wrap it around a perfectly holy, infinite God, I don't know how perfectly holy or infinite he would be if we could do that. There are some things that you were not meant to understand. There are things that I am not going to understand. There are things that we collectively could not bear the weight of if we understood. God knows that. In fact, what he says in Isaiah, when Isaiah, it's an incredible book, if you haven't read it, it's this prophecy to the people of God as they were heading into exile. And it's a promise that God would send a Messiah, that as bad as things looked, which they looked really bad, as bad as things looked, God will never give up on his covenant love. Right before here in chapter 55, Isaiah is baffled. He says, God, how, are you, how do you even have this kind of covenantal love? You know, it's surprising that God loves us. Maybe we grew up hearing that God loves us. It's actually kind of a surprise if you consider the fact that we're sinning against a holy God and we can't seem to stop. It's a surprise that he loves us. And yet he does because it's his character, because of his covenantal love toward us. But here's what God tells us when it comes to us trying to reconcile these tensions. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
There's parallelism going on here. It's saying the same concept over again. He's saying, look, there's going to be things you don't understand. Can you be comfortable with not knowing certain things? I think sometimes we put a burden of proof on Christianity that we don't on any other perspective on life. We come to Christianity and say, everything has to make sense perfectly, okay? I need to know the answer to everything because there's a manual. It's called the Bible. There's 66 books. He should have just outlined everything. Shouldn't he be more clear? And so we put this burden of proof on that. And then we go and choose secularism and realize that we have no basis for any sense of morality in life or any sense of purpose. And we're like, seems to work for me. So we're not even putting the same burden of proof on that kind of approach to life, saying, okay, well, why is it good to not murder someone? Why is it good to be kind to someone? Well, the world struggles to come up with answers for it. Say, oh, there must be these virtues that just kind of exist. Okay, explain that. And we put this burden of proof on Christianity and say, oh, well, there's things that God does that we don't get. But you're comfortable with this other way of living where you still don't understand things. Like what is offered to us in God is a solution to these issues, a solution to these problems that is more robust than anything this world can offer. It's something that you can bet your entire life on, that you can count on, that as you head toward that moment where one day you meet Jesus, you have a hope that is unmatched. You have a hope that will not fail, that is proven time and time again to be faithful to you despite your unfaithfulness to it. That is God. And that's, what he, that's his answer to us in the tension. Guys, if there's any value that's been the most important to me in the last eight years, it's this one. Because I don't know about you, but tensions happen all the time. There are tensions in my life all the time where maybe I want to get mad at God or I want to run from God or I want to hide from God. And every time I have to come back to this and say, okay, wait, 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 wait. I know I want to be mad, but also I know that what I value is embracing the inevitable tension. Would you brace, embrace the inevitable tensions that are in your life? Guys, these five values, they've had such an impact on me in the last eight years. And half the time, I don't even recognize that they are. Like half the time, I'll say something or do something and realize it's just informed by this idea, these ideas from scripture that have so shaped who we are as a church. I've seen it happen in your lives too. I've seen so many people from our church start to have their just eyes open where they're like, wait, there's joy in Jesus. I thought it was all about duty and obligation. Wait, I, wait, I can actually read the Bible and understand it. What? Oh wait, there's a community that has a common mission that I can be a part of. I can find this new family that I'm a part of. Wait, I actually have a purpose when I go to the, the, barista Starbucks thing? Like, what? There's a reason for that? I'm here to be living proof? Watching people embrace the tension of life and say, you know what? I don't have the answer, but God does. God didn't design me to have every answer, but he did design me to have faith. That's one thing he designed me to do, and so I can do that. I've seen so many lives transformed just in the last eight years, which makes me excited for the next eight years and excited for you guys for the next eight years because you guys, God is doing something really, really incredible here. And we get a front row seat to just watching God show off as he changes people's lives time and time again. People keep getting baptized and finding new life in him. And it's just, I, it's amazing that we get to be a part of it. And so here's my question to you. What values guide your life? They don't have to be these five, right? There's a lot of values in scripture. There's a lot of things that you could say matter to you or that you value. But what values guide your life? What, what do you make decisions based on? What do you choose based on? Where, where does that come from? 
is it biblically informed? Does it come from God's word? Or, or is it something that we're just pulling from, from platitudes or from culture, from whatever we think is the best way to live? Where, where do you get your values from? Next one is, what would others say your values are? So if someone was to look at your life from the outside in, what would they say you value? Now, I'm not saying that other people have the final authority on your life. God has the authority on your life. But could they look at you and say, you know what? They do value joy in Jesus. Or they do value who Jesus is and living in a way that's honoring to him. What would others say your values are? And the last one is just an encouragement. In these last few weeks of summer, as summer starts to wrap up and vacations start to finish up, man, which of these five values would you say, you know, I actually would like to lean into this. I would like to grow more here. I, I want to grow in this. I want to grow in my joy in Jesus or my knowledge of scripture, having it saturate my life. I want to find my people that I'm living on mission with. I want to be the living proof for a loving God. Maybe you want to dig into that last one. And there's a tension in your life right now. There's a gap in your life right now that God wants you to begin to embrace, to surrender to him and to have faith as you journey through that tension and journey through that gap. Guys, I love you so much. I love being here. I love this community. And I love that we get to come together to worship Jesus together, to let him be on the throne of our hearts. And so as you just let those questions kind of ruminate in your soul, would you stand with us and worship this morning?